Let us pray. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. About 20 years ago, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill started doing an annual survey about religious attitudes and beliefs of students in the university and then extended it to other campuses. And the findings that they got back were unusual because they didn't fit exactly with any uh, particular religion. And so they came up with a new name for this, which was called Moral Therapeutic Deism. And the tenets of moral therapeutic deism are as follows. A God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. That's pretty good so far. Second, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by other world religions. Three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. Fourth, God does not need to be particularly involved in anyone's life except when God is needed to resolve a big problem. And fifth, all good people go to heaven when they die. Now, all of that sounds nice and there are some elements of truth in some of it, but I cannot emphasize strongly enough that this is a million miles away from the Christian gospel. But I would suggest to you that it is all too easy for us to fall into it because a lot of our culture believes this. And part of it, it reminds me, and I told Justin I'm very nervous about using a golf analogy when Justin is here, but it reminds me of when you go out on a golf course and you know that you want to try to shoot par, the number of strokes that is predicted for a good golfer. But if you were like me, you go out and you hit triple bogey after triple bogey after triple bogey, and you realize if you're going to make par, you've got to all of a sudden catch fire and start playing some really good golf and get some holes in ones and a couple of birdies to be able to come out okay. And all too often, that is the way we approach our spiritual life. If we have a big night on Saturday, or if we have been really mean to our mother-in-law, or if we didn't do this thing or that thing, we think, well, I'd probably better get up and go to church, maybe I'd better make a contribution to charity, or maybe I'd better get some service hours because I need to uh, make the tally a little better in my favor. But the problem with that is that is not what Jesus teaches. And as we come to this passage this morning, it's very important to understand the context in which Jesus is speaking. As we've said before, when these gospels were written, there were no chapter and verse marks. And so this parable that we have today is actually the answer to something that was going on in the chapter before, but you would never know that unless you went back and read it. So the context for what's going on in Matthew 19 is that Jesus has been talking a lot about the Pharisees and the Jews and the fact that they have misunderstood what God's Word teaches about salvation. 
And Jesus has been telling parables about this. He's told the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. He's told the parable of the two sons, the prodigal son and the older brother that thought he deserved everything. There also has been this problem of Jesus welcoming the Gentiles and teaching Gentiles and saying Gentiles can have a share in the kingdom of heaven. So all of that has been going on. And then in Matthew 19, we have the rich young ruler. And the rich young ruler is a Jewish young man who comes up and falls on his knees at Jesus' feet and says, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? In other words, it depends on me to earn it. And Jesus responds to him in a sort of strange way and says, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter eternal life, keep the commandments. Now, it was understood in that time by the Jewish people that there were 613 commandments. Keeping all of those would be well nigh impossible. But the Pharisees had defined them in such a way that if you asked a Pharisee, he would tell you that he was righteous, that he did keep all those, and that God owed him eternal life. And so this young man, uh, we hear elsewhere he may have been a lawyer, which might be true, asks another question, which commandments? And so Jesus says, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man looks at Jesus with a straight face and says, all these I have kept. Really? I'm sure all of you have kept all of those too. Never lied, always honored your father and mother, um, always loved your neighbor as yourself or maybe not. And Jesus looks at the man and says, one thing you lack, go and sell everything you own and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And we hear that the young man went away sad because he had great possessions. And then the shocking thing happens. Jesus looks at his disciples and he said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to be saved. And the disciples are aghast, and they respond by asking, who then can be saved? Because they had been taught all their life that if you were rich and you were Jewish, that meant that God's favor was on you, that God owed you eternal life, and that those riches were a symbol of his blessing. And this young man has just said he's kept all the commandments, and on the survey of who's most likely to be saved, the disciples would have said, that guy goes to the front of the class. And Jesus says, no. And he says how hard it is. And he says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And Peter says, who then can be saved? And Jesus' response is, with man, this is impossible. Impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And then Peter, you've got to love Peter, he rushes in where angels fear to tread. He looks up at Jesus and says, but Jesus, we have left everything to follow you. And Jesus goes on to say, well, in my kingdom, someday you will sit upon thrones. But Jesus says to him these words. He says to him, many who are first will be last, 
and those who are last will be first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning. It leads right into this passage that we have today. And so what Jesus is talking about here is how do you enter heaven? And part of what he is trying to get at is that the way that the disciples have been thinking and the way that the Jewish people have been thinking is wrong. And he looks to explain this through this parable. And as we look through this parable, there are several things I want you to notice. First of all, remember that this is a parable about grace and salvation. This is not a parable about the merits of various economic systems like capitalism and socialism. This is not something that is about fair pay or labor relations. It is not about any of those things. It is about salvation and how salvation comes about. And the first thing to notice is the master. The master in this parable goes out to seek vineyard laborers. He takes the initiative to go out over and over again into this world to call people to come and work in his vineyard. And he is the one taking initiative to do that. The other thing to notice is that what he offers those he first hires early in the morning for pay is a generous wage for a day's labor. A denarius for working in a vineyard all day is pretty good, so they were very happy to be hired for that. Notice that the master pays the last who are hired first, the 11th hour people. These are the people who have only worked for an hour, and probably not very hard because a lot of the work was already done, and yet, when they come to be paid expecting a couple of pennies, they receive a denarius. Imagine their joy and their excitement about, wow, we got so much more than we ever thought we would get. This is awesome. But then things go along and the other workers are like, ooh, if they got a denarius, how much are we going to get? This is gonna be like the lottery, but in fact, each of them gets a denarius. And by the time they get to the ones that have worked all day, those people have begun to grumble. Grumble, complain, say, this is not fair. This is not fair. How dare you? We've been out in the heat of the day, the scorching heat. So sad, these poor people. And they're furious that they're getting paid what they were hired for. And the interesting thing, as James Montgomery Boyce, the great Presbyterian preacher, put it, is God is no man's debtor. God does not owe anything to anyone. And in this parable, God, the master, did not have to hire anyone, and not one person in this parable gets injustice. They all got at least what they deserved, and many, especially the 11th hour people, got far more than they deserved. All who are called by the master receive grace. They all receive more than they deserve. All of them were invited to come in and labor, and all of them have received something. But the interesting thing here is that what the master is offering is grace. And grace is a scandal in this world because we want things to work the way we think they should. 
But that is not the way the kingdom of God works. The kingdom of God is upside down from the way things work in this world. So I'd like for us to just spend a couple of minutes here looking at what I'm calling the three futilities, not the three furies of ancient Greece, but the three futilities that are, I think, things that all of us, even as longtime Christians, fall into. The first futility is the futility of trying to earn your way to God. The scriptures say no one is righteous, no, not one. That means that even the preacher is not righteous. Andrew is not righteous. Bill and Justin are not righteous, and even the rector, Jeff Miller, is not righteous. I can say that because he's out of town. (laughs) But like the rich young ruler, we believe that we have done what we should, and God ought to be very pleased that someone as nice as us has chosen, chosen to follow him. It reminds me of the old Garrison Keillor Lake Wobegon show that used to always close with, that's the news from Lake Wobegon, where all the women are strong, all the men are good looking, and all the children are above average. Now, of course, the problem with that is an average by definition, all people can't be above average. But that tends to be the way that we think of ourselves. And we begin to grumble when things don't work this way. We begin to grumble and think that we deserve certain things. And the problem is that we give ourselves too much credit. We think that we deserve what we have. But the problem is many of us have not ever stopped to think about why we have the blessings that we do have. Your family, your home, your education, your health, the country that you were born in, the time in which you were born, all of these things we have no control over. They are gifts from God that have been given to us. Paul put it this way when he wrote to his brothers and sisters in Corinth, what gives you the right to make such a judgment that you deserve things? What do you have that God has not given to you? And if everything you have is from God, Why boast as though it were up to you and not a gift? We so easily fail to recognize the grace of God that has been lavished upon us because we live in a society where competition and earning are king. Work hard, earn more, get more, be more, do more. You have earned it, so enjoy it. And if you do enough good things, God will not only give you the good life, but heaven as well. But the problem with this is this flies in the face of all of the teaching of Scripture. The second futility is the futility of comparing ourselves to others and then blaming God. And you see what happens in the parable is that they're perfectly happy as they work through the day looking forward to that wage of a denarius that they're going to receive. But it is only when they start seeing somebody else getting more that they get really riled up. And my friends, are not we the same way? We want to make sure that we get what is coming to us. We think that even if everyone else gets shortchanged, we deserve to get what's coming to us. If anyone appears to gain an unfair advantage, then we fume and fuss and we declare it is not fair and 
the problem is that we think that somehow we are entitled. And you see this all over the place. If you watch somebody cut in in a drive-through line, just look at the gestures going on in cars around you. Or my favorite, after having traveled some this summer, when an airline flight is canceled and all 200 odd people are in the position of not being able to get where they want to go, they all immediately flood the poor gate agent explaining why each one of them is more special than the rest and needs the airline's full attention to get them to where they deserve to be able to go. The problem is that we are obsessed with getting what we think we deserve and we think the worst thing that can happen is something that is not fair. Think about it, at work, that person that sits at their desk and they've got solitaire going on their computer screen half the day while you're coming in early and working late ends up getting promoted while you are still working day and night for the same wage. It is not fair. Or what about if you spent all summer working out and training for that team that you were dying to get on and you went to the first couple of practices and you did really, really well and there's this other kid that spent his summer on the beach and when finally the starting lineups come out, you see that you have been assigned to the second string and that other awful kid that loafed on the beach is a starter. And you go home and you tell your mom, this is not fair, call the headmaster. <laughs> or, perhaps a little closer to home, you realize, I haven't really been going to church or paying much attention to my spiritual life. I am going to start going to church. I might even go to Bible study. Or even occasionally, I might get up and go to 815. And as I do all of these things where God ought to be showering blessings on me, my problems don't just vanish. What is wrong with God? Does he not see what I am doing? And the problem is that we are entitled and we start thinking that we deserve things. And what happens when things are not fair is we often let a root of bitterness develop and we become angry and we blame God and we become furious that things don't work out according to what we understand to be right and just. And the third futility is the futility of what I call the balance sheet or the golf scorecard, where we're always playing catch up where if we do a couple of bad things, we're mean, or we do something we shouldn't in traffic, or we say something we shouldn't to someone, or we post something that we shouldn't, we think if we do a few good deeds, we can kind of make up for it. We can kind of cover those bad things up, and we will smell like a rose at the end. But the problem with that is that it is not biblical, and it doesn't work. It's interesting, some 70 years ago, there was a very high-level academic conference going on in London, and the theme of this conference was comparative religion, and what are the things that are the most wonderful about each of the religions, and basically how they're all kind of the same. 
So they were having discussions, and they finally came around to the Christian faith and started talking about, well, what's special about Christianity, and why is it any better than anything else? And the prevailing viewpoint was, well, it's not really better than anything else. Uh, if you look at the idea of incarnation, you've got that in some other religions. You look at the idea of resurrection, you've got things like reincarnation and Hinduism. Uh, you look at all of these different things, uh, and there doesn't seem to be anything particularly distinctive. So they were arguing and getting ready to move on, and then all of a sudden, one of the more prominent delegates walked in late because his train from Oxford was not on time. And as C.S. Lewis walked into the conference, they said, Lewis, what is it about Christianity that's distinctive? We can't find anything. And Lewis said, oh, that's easy. It's grace. And he said, there is no other religion that has grace. The notion of God's love coming to us free of charge, no strings attached, seems to go against every instinct of humanity. The Buddhist eightfold path, the Hindu doctrine of karma, some of the Jewish covenants, and the Muslim code of law, all of these offer ways to earn your way to God. That if you do enough right things, God will approve you, and like a report card, you will get promoted onto the next grade. But only Christianity makes God's love unconditional through the scandal of the cross, based on God's sovereign choice to love us, to offer us costly grace through Jesus' incarnation and death for us on the cross. God's grace runs after us, like the father in the parable of the prodigal son running out to him, or like this master in today's parable going out again and again. God's love invites us to come home. It is not swayed or troubled by our scars or our disobedience or our bitterness. It is unafraid of our filthy sin. It is an active acceptance and love for us that doesn't have to be sought after first. The gospel is the announcement of the undeserved, unmerited, unconditional, unfailing favor and love of the Father towards us regardless of our own unworthiness. You can't barter for more holiness by performing more and more good deeds or working harder. All of grace is wrapped up in God's unspeakable, amazing gift of sending his son Jesus to die on the cross for us. And you see over and over again in the Gospels that this grace is given and offered equally to everyone, to men and to women, to Pharisees and to the lowest prostitute, to tax collectors, to Roman centurions, to Gentile women, all sorts of people who were judged unworthy, and perhaps most poignantly to that thief whose life of crime had finally led him to be sent to the cross to be executed for what he had done, who looks up to Jesus and realizes Jesus has done no wrong and begins to believe in Jesus. And as he looks up to Jesus, believing who he is, he says to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus looks that dying man in the eye and says, my son, this day you will be with me in paradise. It's grace. That is the great good news.
Jesus shreds every sense of entitlement and deservedness. He distributes his grace as he sees fit. And the great good news is there is still more left for each one of us. Even if it's the 11th hour of our lives, if we have been going about our way, doing what we think we should do, and ignoring God or even being embittered against him. You may have heard about Jesus all your life, but you may have been trying to earn your way to him, or you may have been running away from him. You may feel that other people have it so much easier in life, and it's not fair, and you may have ignored God as a result or shunned or mocked him. But the great good news is that Jesus says to us, surrender. Lay down your sword. Put away your indignation. Join your voice to the truth of the words of the old hymn we'll sing later in this service. To God be the glory, great things he has done. So loved he the world that he gave us his son, who yielded his life and atonement for sin, and opened the life gate that all may go in. O perfect redemption, the purchase of blood, to every believer the promise of God, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. Oh, come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give him the glory, great things he has done. Amen.